Good morning, church. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. Um, In January of 2017, CBS News published a story of a Brazilian grandmother by the name of Donna. And Donna was a devoutly religious woman. In fact, she kept a statue of St. Anthony by her bed that she prayed to almost every night. Until one day, a member of her family noticed something a little bit odd about this figurine of St. Anthony. And so after some Googling, she found out that it wasn't a statue of St. Anthony after all. It was a toy depicting a character from Lord of the Rings. I think we have a picture up here of it. Yeah, she'd been praying to the elf lord Elrond of Rivendell on accident. (laughs) Literally, an elf on a shelf. (laughs) Yeah, no wonder her prayers weren't being answered. So uh, yeah, God's up in heaven saying, oh my bad, I thought you said Lord of the Rings, not Lord of all things. (laughs) So that's why the Bible teaches that we pray only to God. It's just far less confusing that way. Today in our text, Acts chapter 8, the author Luke who wrote this text, his goal is to help us distinguish between what's real and what's not. Specifically, to help us distinguish between true faith and false faith. So to set the scene here for our text in Acts chapter 8, there's this guy named Saul in Jerusalem, and Saul is going around persecuting the early Christians. He drags them out of their home, arrests them, throws them in jail, even has them executed. And so the Christians flee from Jerusalem. They take off to get rid of this, to get away from the persecution. But the persecution of the early church does not have its intended effect. Instead of destroying the church, the church actually, it actually grows stronger from the persecution. Because as these Christians flee, Everywhere they go, they're telling people about Jesus. They're being impromptu missionaries. And one of these guys who flees from Jerusalem to get away from the persecution is a guy named Philip, and he's an impromptu missionary, just like the rest of them. And Philip has to flee from Jerusalem to Samaria, which is the land just north of Jerusalem. Now understand, for a Jew, having to flee from Jerusalem to Samaria is just about the worst thing that could ever happen to you, because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They didn't like each other. So that makes it even more shocking what Philip does here in Acts chapter 8. Because Philip goes and he crosses over this racial barrier that has been there for generations. And he breaks down this wall of hostility and this taboo that has been there for centuries. And he tells the Samaritans the good news of Jesus. Crazy stuff. Acts chapter 8 verses 6 through 8. Look what happens. It says, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and any who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. And just like that, what Jesus had promised would happen is happening. We've read this verse a few times in our our series so far together, but you might remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to his followers, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check, we've seen that. And in all Judea and Samaria, check, now we're seeing that, and to the ends of the earth. So the good news of Jesus is on its way from Jerusalem to the end of the world, which is eventually where we get it. But the author here, Luke, zooms in and looks at one guy in particular in Samaria, a guy named Simon. Verses 9 through 13 says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, 
As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So Simon, this guy we're looking at today, Simon is a sorcerer who's become famous with his black magic. Now, it's important for us to remember here that the Bible does say that there are dark spiritual forces at work in the world. Simon is more than just a card shark or an illusionist. He's tampering with the occult. We should never play around with darkness. We should never give the devil a foothold. But we also don't have to be scared because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And Philip shows up here in Samaria with the Holy Spirit and he blows Simon out of the water. Simon's amazed at the things Philip is doing and he figures, hey, well, if you can't beat him, join him. And so Simon hops in line with everybody else and Philip baptizes them. Verses 14 through 17 says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Hold up right here. So they believe in Jesus and they're baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit later until the apostles lays their hands on them. What's going on with that? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Hold on to it for a minute. Meanwhile, Simon sees the apostles giving the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. He thinks that'd be a pretty cool party trick to have up his sleeve, and he wants some of it. Verses 18 through 24 says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. So remember the goal of this passage. The author wants to help us distinguish between true faith and false faith. The author wants to show us first in this text that the Samaritans have true faith. True faith is what the Samaritans have. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, you remember Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. The Jews thought that they were the true believers and the Samaritans were just a bunch of half-breeds and heretics because they didn't practice their faith in the same way. So if you are a Christian in Jerusalem, a Jewish Christian, and you hear that some of those dirty, rotten Samaritans are also becoming Christians, you'd naturally be a little skeptical about whatever's going on over there in Samaria. You see, way back in the day, the Samaritans wanted to be a part of the temple in Jerusalem. But the Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't let them be a part of the temple. And so the Samaritans said, fine, you guys don't think we're the real deal? We'll go build our own temple. And they did. They went and they built their own temple in Samaria. They edited their own version of the scriptures. They did their own thing. So here's the problem. Now that these Jews in Jerusalem are becoming Christians and these Samaritans are becoming Christians, they still know, have real, no real connection to each other. Oh, what's going to happen now? Are there going to be two separate churches? Are they going to keep doing their own thing? Is the church going to be divided? Is this racial tension going to keep going on for more and more centuries? 
And what about this whole thing with the Samaritans being baptized, believing in Jesus, but not receiving the Holy Spirit until the apostles lay their hands on them? What's with that? Well, there's multiple ways to read this text, and it's impossible to know exactly what is happening here, but I think it's reasonable to think, due to the wording of this text, that when the Samaritans were baptized, they did receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, just like you did when you were baptized. The Holy Spirit did save them. He did his invisible work of saving them inside, the invisible work of salvation. However, Peter and John go to Samaria to check it out, to authenticate the faith of the Samaritans. Now, Peter and John are like the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of the early church, right? If they say something, everybody's going to believe it. They are the two most respected leaders. And so Peter and John go to Samaria, and they lay their hands on the Samaritans and give the Samaritans the visible work of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, things like we saw at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples and they started speaking in tongues. That visible work of the Holy Spirit was their apostolic seal of approval. That way, the believers in Samaria now have a connection with the believers in Jerusalem. And the believers in Jerusalem now believe that the faith of the Samaritans is authentic. They're the real deal. So this is a church unity text. God doesn't want his church to be divided. And so in this passage, he is uniting Jews and Samaritans in Jesus. Luke, the author here, wants us to know that the faith of the Samaritans is true faith because they believe, they repent, they are baptized, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the text doesn't end there. The first part of Luke's goal is to show us that the Samaritans have true faith, but the second part of his goal is to show us that Simon has false faith. So what's wrong with Simon's faith here? Well, three quick things. First of all, Simon prioritized using God over being used by God. Simon thought that he could buy and control the Holy Spirit for his own personal gain. Now hear me, church. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of impersonal force that we can manipulate to do our will and make ourselves look good. The goal of us having more of the Holy Spirit is so the Holy Spirit can have more of us. We don't use him, he uses us. Second thing wrong with Simon's faith is he prioritized his glory over God's glory. Simon was doing magic to try to bring fame and power to himself. Philip, on the other hand, is doing these miracles to try to bring fame and power to Jesus. Philip wants converts. Simon just wants customers. He just wants to look good, to have a cool trick. He's trying to bring fame and honor to himself. So, take a look at yourself. Is there an area of your life where you're trying to bring fame and honor and glory and recognition to yourself instead of to God? In your work, in your achievements, in your body, in your kids' achievements, in social media, even in Christian service, how much you're giving. If you're trying to bring glory and honor to yourself, this text would tell you you're on dangerous ground. Third thing wrong here is Simon prioritized external works over internal transformation. Now evidently, Simon said and did all the right things, enough so that Philip thought he was the real deal and baptized him. But Simon's heart wasn't transformed. Oh, sure, Simon knew the right facts about Jesus. But Christianity is a lot more than just knowing the right facts about Jesus. James chapter 2 says, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
In other words, even the devil knows Jesus is real. He just doesn't obey him. He's not being transformed by him. So if you're saying and doing all the right things and believing all the right things, but you're not actually repenting of your sin and seeking to be transformed by Jesus and growing deeper in your relationship every day and actually knowing him, then you're on dangerous ground. It's pretty obvious so far in this text here that the Samaritans have true faith, and it's contrasted because Simon clearly has false faith. But in real life, sometimes it's a lot harder to distinguish who's genuine and who's not, what's true faith, what's false faith, even, even what my faith is. It's hard to draw the line between genuine and not in real life. And maybe that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So that's what I want to do with our remaining minutes together today. So let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, I hope most of us in this room today, and I think most of us in the room today, probably desire to have true faith. I trust that you genuinely desire to have a relationship with God. But if we're not careful, sometimes some false motives for faith can sneak into our hearts, some pretense, even when we don't recognize it. So I want to take a look at the top reasons that people come to church. According to the Pew Research Center in a recent survey, the top 10 reasons that people come to church in America are as follows, starting with number 10. People go to church to please their family, spouse, or partner. Fact of the matter is, some of you don't want to be here right now. <laughs> Some of you are here because your parents drug you here. Some of you are here because you're trying to make your wife happy. I know a guy who says that growing up, he had a weekly drug problem. His parents drug him to church every week. <laughs> if that's you today, I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you will be challenged and encouraged by what happens here. And ultimately, I hope you'll meet Jesus. Reason number nine, people come to church to meet new people or socialize. Now, one of our goals as a church is to get you connected with a deep community of believers. I hope you meet new people here and build relationships, but that's not our ultimate goal. We're not a social club. Our ultimate goal is to glorify God and worship him. Reason number eight, some people go to church because they feel obligated to go. Some of you feel like you have to come to church because you think that good church attendance is what makes you a good person or keeps you on God's good side. Now, you might not come out and say it like that, but on the inside, you're thinking, you know, when I get to the end of the line, God's going to take a look at my resume, and he's going to see how good I am. He's going to see that every time I had the option in the checkout aisle to donate a dollar to the animal hospital, I clicked yes. And, and he's going to see that, you know, I try to be a nice guy, and, and I have respectful kids. My wife volunteers at the school. I try not to cuss. I take my family to church two or three times a month. I'm a pretty good guy, and I'm pretty sure when I kick the bucket, that'll be enough to get me into heaven. Not a chance. The Bible says that the best things we do, all of our righteous deeds, are like filthy rags. You can't earn it. You can't earn your way into heaven. You only get in by faith, true faith, and it's free. You can't buy it. Reason number seven, people come to church to continue their family's religious traditions. If the reason you're here is because you were raised in a Christian home, that's great. But if you've never decided to make that faith your own, then come talk to us. Because... God has lots of children, but God doesn't have any grandchildren. You don't get into heaven on your parents' faith. Jesus wants your faith. Number six, people come to church to be a part of a faith community. 
Now, this is a great reason. We all need a community of people to walk alongside us and help us in our journey with Jesus. Number five, people come to church because they find the sermons valuable. Undoubtedly, this is the reason you're all here today. Because <laughs> the preacher's so wise and handsome and engaging and funny, you know? Especially on the day Steve preaches, right? <laughs> but seriously, I hope you find the preaching helpful here. I hope you think the worship is engaging and the community is rich. But ultimately, we don't want you to walk out of those doors saying, man, that preacher's so funny. That music was on point today. Man, those people are nice. I want you to walk out of those doors saying, I met Jesus today. Wow, God is awesome. Number four, people come to church for comfort in times of trouble or sorrow. Some of you are here today looking for hope, looking for help, looking for healing. If that's you today, please don't stay isolated. We want to help you. We want to walk with you. All of us have those bumps in our journey, and we need each other. So submit a prayer request on mypcc.info. Come talk to us up here after the service. Talk to somebody at the Connection Center or in a green T-shirt or shoot us an email. Our email addresses are on the website, but please, please, please don't stay isolated. Reason number three, people come to church to become a better person. I hear this one all the time, and it's partially true. Jesus will make you a better person, but that's not the goal. The church isn't here to make nice people better. The church is here to make dead people alive. Church is not a place for good advice. The church is a place for good news. The good news that you are dead in your sin, but Jesus Christ can wipe away your sins and bring you to new life. Reason number two, people come to church so their children will have a good moral foundation. Again, this is a good thing. It's great to have good kids, but ultimately that's not setting the bar quite high enough. We don't want you to just have good kids. We want you to have godly kids, and we want to equip you to teach your kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And reason number one, people come to church to become closer to God. That's a pretty good reason. Now, if you're like me, when you take a look inside at your motives, I realize pretty quick, none of us have perfect motives. We're all mixed in there. We all still have pockets of sin hiding out in the crevices of our hearts. You're not perfect. So today, if you are genuinely believing in Jesus and seeking to obey and follow him with everything that you've got, then your salvation's not in jeopardy. I'm not trying to make you doubt everything. I'm not trying to scare you this morning. But I do want you to take a good hard look at what's going on inside your heart. The title of this sermon is From Pretense to Purity. The word pretense basically just means faking it. Some of you have been convicted today that you are living a life of pretense, that your faith isn't really real yet. Some of you are trying to appear like you're one person, but on the inside, you're somebody totally different. Maybe when you walk in here on a Sunday morning, the outside packaging looks nice and genuine, but on the inside, the contents are a cheap imitation. Maybe you're the guy who gripes at his kids and swears at his wife under his breath on the way here, but man, when you get to those front doors, you're smiling, shaking the hand, good morning, brother. <laughs> Maybe you're the girl who sings songs of praise on Sunday morning and gossips and spreads rumors on social media on Monday afternoon. Maybe you're the lady who grew up, grew up in church and you know every song, you know every Bible verse, but you're still nursing a spirit of secret bitterness inside you. 
Maybe you're the guy who can talk a good game about following Jesus, but you're avoiding God's call on your life because you'd still rather make more money in the business world. Or maybe you're the girl who puts Bible verses on Instagram and on the walls of your apartment, but you don't let God's word actually influence who you have in your bedroom. Maybe you're trying to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. There's an old African proverb that says, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. (laughs) (laughs) So what will you do? Will you choose pretense? Or will you choose purity? Because the beautiful thing about this story here in Acts chapter eight is that even though Simon's messed up, Peter still offers him the chance to repent and get his life right with God. And then the story ends. We don't know what happens to Simon. But that same offer is the offer to you, and you can know how your story ends. So today, if you are living a life of pretense, a pretend faith, then repent. Repentance means turning away from that old self, leaving behind your life of pretense, admitting your weakness, and coming to Jesus. Come to Jesus, admit your sin, repent, confess, and be baptized. Man, some of you in this room, I know right now, you, you, you know what you should do. And you're just not doing it. And you know that you've been putting off that step of giving your life completely to Jesus in obedience and baptism for a long time now. If you're still putting it off, please, please, please don't put it off another day. Come talk to us. We can baptize you today. We got baptism coming up, baptism Sunday coming up on March 17th. That's a really easy first step to do that with so many other people. Please, please don't put it off. If you hear one thing I say today, hear this. Real faith is repenting faith. Real faith is repenting faith. Author Brennan Manning tells the story of a guy who was living a life of pretense. His name was Max. And in April of 1975, Max was a patient at an alcohol rehabilitation center in Minnesota. Max was a small man, but he was the president of his company, wealthy, diplomatic, father of five children, said he was a Christian. The therapist was a man by the name of Sean Murphy O'Connor. And one morning, Max was on the hot seat in the middle of the therapy group when the therapist, Mr. Murphy O'Connor, began his interrogation. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? Max winced. (laughs) That's quite unfair. (laughs) We'll see. I want to get into your drinking history. How much booze per day, Max? Max lit his corncob pipe. Well, I have uh, two with the men before lunch and two after the office closes at five. The wife likes a drink before dinner. We have two martinis before dinner and then uh, two more before we go to bed. A total of eight drinks a day, Max, Murphy O'Connor inquired. Absolutely right. Not a drop more, not a drop less. You're a liar. Unruffled, Max replied, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. I've been in business for 20-odd years and built my reputation. People know my word is my bond. Well, Max was bluffing. 
He wasn't being honest with himself or with the therapist, Mr. Murphy O'Connor, and Max fudged and hedged and minimalized and rationalized and justified his drinking habit. Finally, after 20 minutes of relentless cross-examination, it came to light that in addition to that, Max had a bar in his living room, several cases of vodka and gin and a few bottles of bourbon in the garage. He kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in the suitcase for travel purposes, another in the bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more in the office for entertaining clients clients. Give me a phone, said Mr. Murphy O'Connor. He dialed the number of Max's hometown and set the phone up where everyone in the room could hear loud and clear. Murphy O'Connor then proceeded to speak to the bartender at Max's local tavern who revealed that Max also came in and drank six martinis every day. At this, Max leapt to his feet. He was furious. He unleashed a stream of profanity. He clawed at the sofa and spat on the rug. And eventually, he regained his composure, and he thought that the interrogation was finally over. But not yet. Have you ever been unkind to one of your kids? I'm glad you brought that up. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. In fact, this last Thanksgiving, I took them to the Rockies on a hiking trip, and we... That's not what I asked. A long pause. Well... I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter on Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling when I think about it. Where did it happen? What, what were the circumstances? Max's voice rose in anger. I, I told you, I can't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling. Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more and spoke with his wife. Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am, we're in the middle of a group therapy session. Your husband just told us that he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Could you give me the details, please? A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. Seemed like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for her Christmas present. And on the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the whole store. That's exactly what she did. When she climbed back up into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Well, Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Corkin' Bottle, that's a tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he'd be right out. It was clear and extremely cold that day, about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so nobody could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon. Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. He lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand. And she will be deaf for the rest of her life. As the realization of what he had done hit him and the memories came flooding back, Max collapsed there on the floor in the middle of the group, sobbing hysterically. 
And the therapist, Mr. Murphy O'Connor, looked down at him in rage. You unspeakable slime. Get out of here before I throw up. I am not running a rehab for liars. Now, maybe when you hear that, you think that Sean Murphy O'Connor was being overly harsh. And to be honest, when you read Acts chapter 8 and Peter says to Simon, may your money perish with you, maybe you thought that was overly harsh. Well, God often has to speak tough truth so that we will turn to his tender love. So let me speak a tough truth to you today. If you are pretending, your soul is in danger, and your eternal destiny is at stake. But if you repent, God will be waiting for you in love. Romans chapter 2 says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Later that day, Max pleaded for and obtained permission to continue treatment, and he proceeded to undergo the most dramatic personality change Brennan Manning ever witnessed. He became honest and more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate than any man in the whole group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. The night before Max completed treatment, he was in his room reading a novel when another patient came by and knocked on the door. When Max looked up, his cheeks were streaked with tears. He said, I, I just prayed for the first time in my life. And Max was on the road to knowing God. Real faith is repenting faith. So if you have been living a life of pretense, and if you seek a faith, a true faith, that will change you from the inside out, then come repent. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Father, move us from pretense to purity. Father, create in me a pure heart. Father, do not let anyone leave this room today who is not right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.